Hey, Three Crosses family, this is Pastor AJ. I oversee life groups and discipleship here at Three Crosses, and today we are excited to introduce a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. Uh, Today we're introducing the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, so we'll be in Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12. And so today, we got an amazing conversation on the Beatitudes. And so without further ado, let's go deeper. joining us to introduce the new series titled Kingdom Codes, all about the message of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus himself, is none other than Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome to a new series. I am very excited about this series. I'm excited to talk about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes today. Yeah, there's so much packed in here, so I'm, I'm so excited to sit down and have some more conversations to take us even deeper into one of the Jesus' strongest, deepest teachings. And so from the very get-go, I wanted to ask you, just thinking about the direction of the church and everything like that, what brought you to this passage right here, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, all the way to chapter 7? Why the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon ever delivered in the history of the world. <laughs> That's a pretty good one to be in, huh? <laughs> and so it's important to touch on it from time to time. You know, we uh, have a team of people that work together to kind of identify where God's leading us, where it comes to preaching and teaching the scriptures. And so last fall, as we walked through that, I think it was Lauren Corbis, our middle school yep. director, who pitched an idea on the Sermon on the Mount and just felt like a great fit for where we are as a church right now, just kind of wrestling through what is the culture of the family of God that Jesus is trying to create? What are the the kingdom ethics, right? We call this kingdom codes, blueprint for powerful living. And so, yeah, I loved her her ideas and we turned it into a whole series that's going to start now and actually kind of flow us out towards the end of the summer. So we're looking forward to walking through it. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome series. We're taking this slow. Uh, two chapter, three chapters, sorry, five, six, and seven. And uh, we're going to be taking it bit by bit starting with chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And I wanted to introduce these passages because uh, already we're talking about setting. We're talking about context. And so can you help us step into the shoes of Matthew here, the author, as he begins to paint the scene, because we are jumping into Matthew chapter 5, which means there's four chapters before this. So, so help us paint the picture of how Matthew wants to lead into the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, right before Matthew chapter 5 is Matthew chapter 4. <laughs> and in Matthew chapter 4, we, we see Jesus initiating his earthly ministry. And as we see it in I think all of the Gospels, or at least uh, a number of the Gospels, Jesus is in the Galilee region. He's going from synagogue to synagogue, casting out demons, healing people. He's developing quite a crowd. And so at the end of Matthew 4, we see a picture that there are folks who are struggling with all these different ailments who are flocking to Jesus for healing. And this kind of becomes the context where in the midst of this chaos, 
he goes up on this mountainside and he calls his disciples to himself and he begins to teach these ethics of the kingdom. We see in Luke chapter six, a different iteration of Sermon on the Mount, which seems to be the, the same exact context. Tons of folks needing healing all over the place. And in the midst of this chaos, he looks at his disciples. It says he goes down to a level place. It's probably the same context, right? But goes and finds a level place on this mountain and he addresses the disciples, most scholars believe, in full hearing of them all. So there's this mix of a, of a sermon devoted to targeting the disciples themselves, but there are so many other people who are coming to Jesus who are hearing the words coming out of his mouth of the most powerful sermon of all time. And we'll see that kind of play out as we get into the specific uh, statements that are given in the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, even before we get into those nine statements, I think we got to get on the same page uh, on this one key word. And if you know the Beatitudes, you know this word, it's blessed. Blessed. Blessed seems like a very uh, Christianese type of word where it's like a, a, a phrase we use a lot in the church and maybe we haven't really thought deeply about the meaning. You hear it all over culture. You hear it all over, essentially all over. Uh, what does it mean to live the blessed life? Uh, yeah, I can I can almost hear the modern version of this saying like, yeah, blessed are you, like you're, you're blessed because you have a mansion. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, just this, this phrase, just like a lot of other phrases gets thrown out and we don't really spend time to think deeply about it, but it gets repeated so often here. So I figured, can we just start off with what is the definition of blessed? Yeah, blessed. It's funny. You mentioned it in our culture. I think across cultures throughout time, Blessed is usually the word that's meant to describe those who are in the highest echelon of society. Hmm. So in right in the Greco-Roman times where Jesus was living and kind of that, that era, the word blessed was mostly used of the gods themselves. If you went to seventh grade history or whenever it was taught, right, the uh, pantheon of the Greek gods, the blessed life was these gods who didn't need to work. They had everything they wanted. They had powers. They could force humans to do their bidding, all these things. They were truly at the top of the pinnacle. In our society, we don't have a, you know, when we're talking about secular society, we don't have a common belief in the gods or some kind of pantheon of gods. I think we normally talk about movie stars, athletes, <laughs> right? The word blessed, when you were just saying it, I pictured the luxury box at the Super Bowl where the camera is going to cut to Taylor <laughs> Swift and the Kelsey family. Like, oh, right, man. these are the blessed this ones blessed who folks right they there. afforded the whatever $100,000 seats at the Super Bowl. They're driving the cars, whatever. They're the blessed ones. So then distilling it down to the everyday folks like you and me, we call ourselves blessed when we get a glimpse of life like those people get to live. Hmm. So right, we're blessed. You make a little extra money. You got some walking around money. Man, I feel blessed right now. Or, hey, I just got this rad car. I just, I am blessed, right? Sometimes it's a humble thing to say. Sometimes it's, right, you're bragging about something. But uh, really, it's you get a slice, a sliver of life that usually only the gods or the rich and famous get to experience. And in Jesus' day, the religious folks would use the term blessed to talk about life in the kingdom on the other side of eternity. Someday, hey, in this, in this world, it's a struggle, but we're blessed too because someday we're going to be with God in eternity and, and we're not going to have to labor and toil and sweat and bleed to make a living, to eke out a living. Uh, we'll be living the blessed life in eternity someday as well. I find it so fascinating. It feels like the Bible is on you know, a different plane because it's, it's constantly trying to reorient our minds around what is 
blessed. You know, I think of Psalm 1, probably the famous one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And you look throughout the scriptures, it's always challenging our mindset on, on blessedness. And that leads directly into the Sermon on the Mount, because, man, if you're looking at this for a first time, you're saying, I don't, are these people really blessed? Because <laughs> yeah. th- these blessings are radical, even for biblical standards, right? right? So yeah. Psalm 1, like you mentioned, hey, the blessed person is not the guy who lives in a mansion or the gal who's got right the, the best whatever. The blessed one is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it. Like, yeah, that's awesome, right? That's <laughs> it's still a good thing. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus describes as blessed those who no one would ever think as blessed. And so he does kind of yeah, extend this definition of blessing even beyond what we're used to in the Bible. So it's pretty radical. So let's just hop into them and give some space to talk about each one in a little bit more in depth. One might say go deeper into Mm -hmm. them. Um, And I love the way you broke it down in your sermon. You said there are groups of four. And so you had the first four that kind of describe a current state. And then the second four seemed to insinuate that there's something like you can do to lead to a blessed life. And so uh, we'll follow that train of thought um, as we spend time in each one. But I just want to give you the mic to to make some comments or or what stood out to you in each of these particular ones. So let's start off with the very first one. Jesus opens this entire thing saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, I feel like there's three like common words that get thrown out a lot, but we really haven't thought deeply about. So the first one, blessed, obviously we talked about that a little bit, but poor in spirit, that's such an interesting phrase. Uh, Could you help us wrap our heads around that? And then even kingdom of heaven at this point, uh, it's it's just a hard concept to grasp in just one sentence. So there's a lot here. I'll pass the mic to you. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, yeah, but theirs is the kingdom, the kingdom of, heaven. of heaven. The reason that we know that we kind of clump these first four together is scholars will point out when you read the Greek New Testament, the first four all start with P, which delights me. This is like <laughs> Jesus' big sermon and it has alliteration in it. That's every sermon writer's dream. But uh, so yeah, so the poor in spirit, you know, in Luke's gospel, it just says poor. And I think when we see the word poor, we just think of those who are financially poor. And so it feels like Matthew is is including the in spirit here as trying to help us, you know, through the through the filter of language, moving from Jesus preaching in Aramaic to writing in Greek, and now we're reading it in English, trying to point out that what Jesus is getting at is not just those who lack material wealth, but there's some other type of poverty he's talking about here. So, you know, the last 500 years, the Reformation theologians would say, well, what Jesus meant is the spiritually poor, those who come before the throne of grace and say, God, I have nothing to offer to you spiritually. I'm morally bankrupt. I need your grace. And and it definitely includes that. But when we look at the context that the kind of life and times of Jesus in his day, poor in spirit was not merely about material wealth and not merely about spiritual bankruptcy. But, but kind of the spirit of a person, kind of like our emotion, our thoughts, kind of the, the encapsulation of the non-tangible stuff within us. It's really a depiction of us being just downtrodden at an emotional, mental level, right? So it's, hmm. uh, I think of the Psalms, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Hmm. And this idea mm-hmm. that that's a person who's poor in spirit. So you're like, man, my, my, my heart is heavy. 
uh, we might say in our day today. And so I think when Jesus is talking about the poor in spirit, he's not merely talking about the, the spiritually bankrupt. He's not merely talking about the financially bankrupt, but he's including just the, the situation that we might find ourselves in life when just our hearts are sinking within us because there's just something, just something off. We don't have what we need or the world is falling apart or our circumstances are, are we're suffering, whatever it is. But for whatever reason, it's like, I'm just, like we said on Sunday, I'm just not doing so good right now. Right. Uh, I'm poor in my spirit. Hmm. And so how does the kingdom of heaven like be the antidote of that and lead to the blessed life? Yeah, I think kingdom of heaven is probably, I think that's bracketed, right? The last one right. too is right. theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I think it's less of a mapping straight, this beatitude to this blessing that comes from it in this one right. and really more kind of centering this idea that, hey, we're, we're the context who we're talking to, this audience is the broken among us. And Jesus is saying, those folks, the reason you're blessed, even in that context, is because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you, right? Mm. So that does kind of tie in with the kind of contemporary idea that of Jesus' day that we are blessed because someday we'll inherit the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so what he's doing now is saying, hey, it's not just the rich and powerful. It's not just the morally upright, like the Pharisees, religious leaders who enter the kingdom of heaven, but even right. the poor in spirit, or maybe only the poor in spirit right, right. are those who are eligible for the blessing of the kingdom of heaven that is to come. So if I'm hearing you right, it's maybe not necessarily like A equals B. It's like A equals, yes, A might equal B, poor in spirit leads to the kingdom of heaven. But then there's something about kingdom of heaven that's setting up this entire conversation. Is that? Yeah, it could be both. Because I think, you know, like with hunger will be filled, mourned will be comforted. There's an A, B there. This one, on one hand, yeah, brackets the whole thing. On the other hand, it might be an A, B there where it's, like I mentioned on Sunday, the, the one requirement that Jesus gives for us to receive this blessing he offers is to re- recognize our desperate need of God. And so it might just be a, a summary statement to say, hey, mm. those who are poor in spirit, you recognize your need for God, the kingdom of heaven is waiting for you. And then kind of dives into a little more of the specifics about life and that condition. Yeah, I also find it interesting. This is the... One, besides the other bracketing one, which we'll get to later, that is in the present active, mm. meaning like it's, it's now. And, and I think that is very significant because you'll see a lot of will be or will be, but it's like theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, we'll move on to the second one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That sort of makes sense, a little bit more sense to me. I can understand mourning. Um, but what, do, what would you have to say to this one uh, that stands out to you in your studies? Yeah, for me, on one hand, kind of like the literal level, poor could it be financially poor, mourning could be grieving the loss of a loved one. But it seems from the context and from the study that when Jesus talks about those who mourn, it goes beyond just I'm grieving the mm. loss of a father or the loss of a, of a sibling. And that mourning is uh, connected with these other beatitudes in the sense that it's uh, there's this this grief, this longing that... The world is not the way it should be. I'm mourning maybe over my own sin or my condition, right? I'm spiritually poor. I'm mourning over the state of the world. I'm longing for things to be made right. I'm looking for that kingdom to come that I'm promised someday, but now, right? Someday I'll be blessed, but today I mourn. Hmm. And so I, I do think mourn is a word that encapsulates more than just grief, but even the grief that comes from the state of our, our soul, the state of our world. And again, just kind of focusing in on those people who are downtrodden among us, uh, comfort is coming. There is comfort coming for those who, who are grieving loss or just grieving the state of the world. Do you think this could be, I mean, just a description of the general um, 
state that you're in? Or could this be like, blessed are those who like proactively spend time mourning? I, I read the Sermon on the Mount to that Jesus is addressing the emotions that people on one hand are experiencing right now and on the other hand might experience later. Hmm. And I don't know if this is totally correct or not, but part of how I read it is that he's equipping us that when we find ourselves mourning, Hmm. what pops into our mind next is you'll be comforted. So when you experience the grief of the loss of a loved one, one of the things that pops into your mind is Jesus himself saying, comfort's coming for you. When you're on your face before God, grieving over the sin you just committed, and you're asking forgiveness, you hear Jesus' words echoing in your mind, comfort is coming, um, which connects with with some of the other Beatitudes as well. But I think he's trying to equip those who are currently in the circumstance, mm-hmm. but also just equip when we will be in that circumstance. And then like we said on Sunday, equip the disciples who are ministering to those in that circumstance that there is comfort for the mourners. There, there is not. I love that. There's not judgment for the mourners. There's not right. Uh, get your act together for the mourners. There's a promise that comfort is coming to those who are mourning here in this world, which, which is just this reassurance, right? It's the opposite of gaslighting. It's this reassurance <laughs> right, right. that, hey, if you're sad because this world stinks, that's probably an okay way to feel because it does. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. It's a reminder that in this kingdom that's coming, um, there is comfort for the brokenhearted. There's a lot of freedom and not, it's okay to not be okay. There's a mm. common phrase that I hear a lot. And yeah, it's pretty comforting to know. It's like, yeah, I can allow that emotion to be there so that I can feel what's going to come when God comforts me. And so. I love what Jesus says. It's okay to not be okay. Uh and part of the reason there's some substance too, because like there is change that's coming, right? If we right. don't believe in a right. kingdom, we don't believe in eternity, we don't believe in a Messiah, this world is all that there is, the mourners will not be comforted. Hmm. The mourners will be sad and then they'll die and turn into dust again. Like that's the Sermon on the Mount. Part of it is a connection with the, can I say eschatological reality? Uh, <laughs> what do you mean by the eschatological? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is the uh, right the eschaton is the end times right. that someday the kingdom will come, all things will be made right. It's a reminder that as the people of God, this world is not our final destination. Right, um, which is part of the reason I love that we're moving from Matthew five into Revelation in the fall. Um, oh man, and Daniel right now in <laughs> in our community nights, but yeah. um, talking about the connection between life in this world. And the world that is to come. Which is why, I mean, that kingdom of heaven comment at the very beginning was really profound because it kind of encapsulates and bleeds into some of the other ones. And so we'll continue with another word that gets thrown around that I don't even know if I know what it means necessarily, but blessed are the meek. The meek. The meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek. I'm not sure what to do with that word, <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, there's a our men, uh, men's ministry has been going to Alliance Redwoods uh, camp for the last several years for their their annual conference, and right next door to Alliance Redwoods is Camp Meeker. And every time I, I think about Camp Meeker, I remember one of our pastors, this guy Brent, who was at our church a long time ago. We'd be driving in the car together, and every time we drive past Camp Meeker, he would say the same thing. He'd say he'd pretend to be a mom. He'd say, "Johnny, how was camp this week? How do you feel about spending all week at camp?" And Johnny goes. Meeker. <laughs> so that's, that's all I can think when I think about meek. Because I think in our culture, this word is kind of like this, right? Flimsy, powerless. Right. Uh, Do you think it's because it rhymes with weak? Yeah, weak. Yeah, weakling type of person that just like, they don't have the strength that it takes to right. 
to exert effort, right? Where the opposite of meek is like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, who's strong. Uh, but it's interesting when you when you study meek in the Greek language, there's a um, a phrase like a I forget what you call this kind of phrase, but a phrase that people would say like meek like a lion, mm. and meekness in the Greek language in Jesus' day was more about a self-control to almost act as if you are someone without power when you do have power, mm, right? So meek like a lion would be, right? You see this lion just kind of walking around, laying in the sun. It's like, oh, look at that cute little cat. It's like, it's not actually, right? There's a, a lot of power. But in yeah. this moment, it's not expressing the power it has. Mm. And so we think even in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, these people who everything in them wants to rise up against their oppressor, everything in them wants to go and get justice for themselves, everything in them doesn't want to turn the other cheek, like we'll talk about next chapter, everything in them doesn't want to go the extra mile, and yet though they have the strength to stand up to the Roman government, though they do have the strength to stand up to their oppressor, they decide even in advance they're going to live out these ethics of the kingdom where mm -hmm. they're going to turn the other cheek. They're going to go the extra mile. They're going to be merciful. They're going to forgive those who sin against them. They're going to, they're going to hold back when they're being persecuted. And so it's almost a foreshadowing of the ethic he's going to lay out, even including in the Beatitudes, where we as believers in Jesus Christ are not fighting against the world because we're not not fighting because we're weak. Uh, we're not not fighting because we're meek, that we've chosen that we are going to live out this kingdom ethic, even if it costs us personal pain or hardship. Hmm. And, and what do you make of the inherit the earth piece uh, and the power dynamic going on with this meekness? Like, again, going back to the eschatological conversation. Yeah, it might be a means thing, right? So, um, you know, the zealot might say, we need to rise up against this mm -hmm. oppressive government and take what's owed to us or take what's ours or take back this world. And Jesus says, listen, uh, you live by my kingdom ethics and you walk in a way of meekness. You're not going to take the world, but it, it will be given to you. Mm -hmm. And I will go and I will, mm -hmm. I will win the world. I will win the battle. I'll win the battle over sin, death, Satan, the enemy. I'll conquer all kingdoms. I'm the king of kings and you're my child, I'm going to give it to you. Mm. And so it's, it might be saying, Hey, yeah, you're not going to rise up and take what's quote unquote owed you, but you're going to stand back and live out these ethics. I'm about to lay forth and you're going to inherit everything on the other side again of, of the kingdom. Well, the fourth one in verse six is a little bit easier to understand. Okay. I can resonate with these two things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. I resonate with the feeling of, of being hunger. <laughs> yeah, hungry and full at the same time. Yeah. Uh, but what say you about this verse six? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Yeah, we can look at it two ways. We can look at it through the lens of poverty, like we talked about in the first beatitude, that Jesus' people are known not because they're hungry for food, because they're starving and poor, mm -hmm. but the way, even if they are starving and poor, the thing they truly hunger for is the righteousness of God. Um, so it's this idea that that we live in a different type of, of world. It also could be a callback to that idea of mourning that, man, we, righteousness in the scriptures, just, you know, this, this Greek word diakosune mm -hmm. uh, means two things. One, it means for ourselves holiness, like a personal holiness. And also that's the same word used for justice when it talks about things being made right on this planet. And so if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it could be because I have no righteousness of my own. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Mm -hmm. I need righteousness that only comes from God. We see that in Romans. Uh, but it also could mean 
And I'm longing for things to be made right. I'm longing for the world to work the way it should. I'm longing for the oppressed to, to get the dignity they deserve. I'm longing for the oppressors to get their just desserts. I'm hungry for righteousness. And though I'm meek and I'm not going to rise up and take it, I'm not going to grab a sword. I hunger, I long for that day. I thirst for that day when the world looks as it should look inside my own life and around me in this society. I long for things to be made right. It's fascinating how it's almost hitting the person who's in this situation, but it's also like looking around at the world and seeing what society is like and, and the collectiveness of it. So I love the, the kingdom imagery that started this whole thing off. And that, that covers our first four, cluster of four. We got four more to go. So hang on, here we go. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Two words there, mercy and merciful. It seems like Jesus loves mercy. Uh, yes. What is this concept of mercy and uh, why should we be merciful? Yeah, mercy, mercy is similar to forgiveness. You may have heard it said that you know, forgiveness is uh, letting someone off the hook, right? And mercy is not giving someone judgment that they deserve. So they're very similar. Um, this connects with the forgiveness ethic of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, judge not yet lest you be judged or um, the forgiveness parables, mm -hmm. right? If, if you forgive those, who, if you do not forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will not forgive you. That's Sermon on the Mount and in some of the parables of Jesus. Um, and so this is part of the ethic of God's kingdom that um, when we go out as mercy givers, being people who refuse to bring forth judgment, but instead open the door of forgiveness to those, to mm -hmm. all of those who need it and require it, um, that that's a beautiful place to be. We're living in kind of the stream of mercy of God. The next one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Yeah, what pure, a fascinating one. They will see God. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying purity in the scriptures is, and probably everywhere, right? Purity is a word that generally means unadulterated, 100% authentic, right? So a pure piece of gold has been refined in the fire, right? A pure heart is one where there's no deceit, there's no dirtiness, there's no sin, and this context of being pure in heart and seeing God, you almost get this, this picture of just 100% desire uh, to live in God's will, to have no sin in your life, to have no distraction in your life, to not be caught up in the world, to kind of throw off all that entangles us and just say, God, I want you 100%. And it kind of lines up with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the entire Bible that right, when you seek for God with all your heart, you will find him, right? Ask, seek, knock is right here in the Sermon on the Mount. So um, this idea that when you've set your sights 100% on seeing God, you will. Hmm. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What's, what do you got to say about peacemakers and children of God? The there's so many questions here. Peacemaker, right? It's a peacemaker, someone who makes peace. That's not, a, that one's a pretty easy one to look at in the English language. Um, so we think about Paul in Corinthians saying that we are ministers of reconciliation, that we are people who are bringing peace between others and God, peace and reconciliation between people that part of the gospel work is reconciling people to themselves, to each other, to God. And so when we go out on that limb to go and make peace in this society, being sons of God is this concept that, uh, you know, like you look like your old man kind of thing, right? You are, uh, you are proving yourself to be sons of your father in heaven. And uh, that's a term, right? It doesn't say sons and daughters. It says sons on purpose um, for a number of reasons in that culture of just, you are the one who has now kind of stepped into this role that you represent your heavenly father. Um, so whether you're a woman or 
man. You could become a son of God in the sense of you have all the rights and privileges of an heir because you've adopted the family values. And so the peacemaking work of humans is a good work to do because that's the work that God has set about for mm. himself to do as well. And finally, the eighth one, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And you might've heard this phrase if you've been paying attention to the very first one, for theirs is, is the, the kingdom, kingdom of, of heaven. heaven. So why does he wrap it up with those who are persecuted because of righteousness? And uh, yeah, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I think it's, on one hand, we've, we've come a long way in eight Beatitudes. Right? <laughs> we've come from like, man, life stinks and I'm so powerless and I feel like a worm here on the ground. And now it's like I've stood up. I've devoted myself to the Lord. I, I'm seeking out peace. I'm dishing out mercy. I'm living this life where I'm representing God on this planet. And all of a sudden, right, like we see in First Peter all the time, this suffering is coming towards you. And even in that sense of persecution where people are coming after you because of your faith and because of the way you're trying to live a righteous and beautiful life in this world, and it's one of those things, like Peter says, don't think it's strange when stuff like that happens. It happens. Jesus doubles down on this in a moment. But um, this is part of the result of living our lives on mission for God in this world that's broken and falling apart is hmm. persecution comes. And so just a reminder that you know, on the other side of that coin, you started out spiritually poor, and now you're a super spiritually mature person living out your faith in this real world. Yours is the kingdom of heaven, right? Nothing has changed in that sense. This kingdom of heaven still belongs to you. Hmm. So thankfully, the, the passage doesn't end here because we have verses 11 to 12. But, <laughs> Which are, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Thankfully is the word because it's still <laughs> oh, pretty man. dire. Yeah. We could keep going and going to every verse. But uh, before we got to 11 and 12, I have two questions Ooh, for okay, you okay. that are related. One of them is a skeptic question. Oh, I was hoping it would be. <laughs> but the first one won't be the skeptic question. The first one is uh, the breakdown. So we, we've gone through the first eight. And in your sermon, you said there's categories of four. What did you learn based on how Matthew presents these eight, these first eight? Like, wh why do you think he, he put them in this specific trajectory? Yeah, I, I, I kept trying to imagine myself in the circumstances of these disciples. Because Matthew in, in chapter 4 and 5, and even Luke in chapter 6 in his account of the Sermon on the Mount... It's careful to say both times that there's a crowd of people who are living on the margins, who are desperate in need of God, describing, you know, almost some of the descriptors of the Beatitudes. And they're there listening on while Jesus is targeting this conversation at the disciples specifically. Hmm. And so I just kept imagining what it would feel like to be one of those people who's at the end of their rope, who needs healing desperately. And you're hearing Jesus teach his disciples that people like you are blessed. Hmm. I feel like that would be just a beautiful affirmation that you're in God's will and he loves you. I was thinking of the disciples who are getting reinforced into them an ethic of what it means to live in ministry, that these people are not the cursed people. These are the blessed ones, that, that these people around you who desperately need healing, these are people who God loves. And so let's not forget about them. Let's mm -hmm. minister to these people in their time of need. But with the disciples being the primary audience of the Sermon on the Mount, I, I kind of feel like what Jesus is doing is moving from the state of, of those who are in need around them and kind of moving to the progression of the spiritual life, saying, you know, we're going to address some of these things in this sermon in the next few chapters. But uh, as we go and we seek God, as we go and we make him our unadulterated pursuit, as we go and uh, try to make peace and bring reconciliation and live out these ethics in this world— we are still under God's blessing, even though sometimes it's going to be real hard. And so um, 
I think he is equipping the disciples and all who are listening to start to, to lean into or prepare their hearts for what they're about to hear in the rest of the sermon, which are some pretty radical ethics about what it means to live life as part of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. So I think he moves from just ministering to people in their situation to mm-hmm. pre-ministering <laughs> to people yeah. as they're about to apply the teaching they haven't even heard yet. And you can almost see it in the first four, now that you've broken it down like that. You can see it's almost describing that state of the union in the first four. And then it's like, yeah, when you bring mercy, when you uh, are pure in heart, when you are the peacemaker in the situation, and when you ultimately become persecuted, that seems to be like the lifestyle of it all. And uh, yeah, it's just so fascinating to think of the breakdown from the author, Matthew, here. But that also leads to my skeptic question. Okay. <laughs> I, t- I have a hard time thinking of skeptic coming into the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, oh man, but what? Yeah, it's there. It. Okay. <laughs> because yeah, a lot of skeptics will point to this and be like, wow, this is some radical teaching. Even they won't like grasp what exactly is going on. Like, how could this be the blessed life? But I'm going to take a little bit different angle because we've also been mentioning that this same passage appears in Luke six. Hmm. And uh, it gets described as a sermon on a flat plane. Did did you say that? Flat plane? The Sermon on the Plane. The Sermon on the Plane. And if you look at Luke 6, you'll notice that Luke only includes the first beatitude, the fourth beatitude, the second, and the ninth, and those being in Matthew, in that order. And if this is like a really important teaching of Jesus... They can't decide whether it's a flat plane or if it's a hill. They can't decide on what nine to include. Uh, They're they're very similar. And and Luke actually includes, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And here in Matthew, it's blessed is the one, blessed is the one. So it just feels like if they can't decide and they can't get their story straight on one of Jesus's most important teachings, how can we trust these guys? Like, how, how, how can we trust the authors of the New Testament? And if this is so important, why doesn't it appear in Mark? Or why doesn't it appear in Luke? Or, sorry, it does appear in Luke. Why doesn't it appear in John? So those are my skeptic questions oh, to you. So many how would you like to handle you. Yes, I've got five answers. I don't know if I'll remember them all, but I thought of five <laughs> while you were asking that question. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to, there's a lot of different, there's a complexity of even that question, right? Can we trust the Bible? Can we right. trust the words that are written in the Bible, right? So... Some of the ways, if you're, if you're a person right now who's listening and you've asked some of those same questions to answer some of those, some of them are, are easy, right? So Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. Which one was it, right? It's like, <laughs> is this a vast conspiracy of geography or topography? Uh, feels like that's one where it's, okay, well, most likely, right? We've, if you've been to Galilee or seen pictures of, of Northern Galilee, it's like you, you can imagine where this might have happened and... If you ever walk that hill, it's like you go up from the seaside and you're on a hill, you're on a mountain, but you also imagine, right, Jesus finds a level place on the mountain to kind of stand and set his feet and give this. So he, in Luke, he found a level place on that hill. Matthew says it was on a hill, right? It's like both are true at the same time. So sometimes you can weave these stories together and both can be simultaneously true and not contradictory. If you don't want to take my word for it, get on an airplane, fly to right? Where is that? Uh, Capernaum or whatever the, what's the, what's Capernaum? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you can see a place that's likely this location and see how it's a, both a hill and a flat place, right? That's the easiest one. It gets a little more complicated because part of it is this is translated through language, right? Which 
Jesus most likely preached the Sermon on the Mount in Aramaic, which was the, the spoken language of that time. The, the New Testament was written in Greek. And that that's an interesting, you kind of have to figure out how to take like from Greek to English, we have to figure out how do we translate these words well. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus says the Aramaic word for poor, Matthew and Luke both have to describe this figure out how do I take that from Aramaic to Greek? And so maybe Matthew was like, okay, well, the word he used is the word that means spiritually poor, poor in spirit. Luke's like, he said the word poor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, both could be true at the same time. We don't know for sure if that's what happened, hmm. but th- that type of thing happens too, is we have to go through language. The third one, which is a little more complicated, uh, I don't even know if this article still exists, but if you want to, you can Google Daryl Bock, B-O-C-K, wrote a great article called Live Jive or Memorex. <laughs> uh, Memorex is like, <laughs> that's an old timey word. But uh, which is really just wrestling with this idea of direct discourse, which is when uh, someone speaks words out of their mouth and others have to write it down, right? Mm -hmm. Because most likely the disciples, there was no Memorex, there was no tape recorder. Mm -hmm. Most likely they weren't sitting there taking notes. Nobody had pen and pads. Most likely they heard this teaching and then later wrote it down. And so Bach in his article wrestles with when we read direct discourse in the scriptures like this, is it a word for word transliteration of what Jesus said, hmm. right? Is it Memorex? Uh, is it Jive, right? He says, he, because it rhymes, but, right? Is it just like, <laughs> ah, he said something like this or is it, right? Live is this concept of like, hey, I was there. Let me recapitulate it to you. And the words are going to be exactly the same, but the meaning is going to be there. It's probably not a totally direct quote. Um, so I think part of it is this idea of oral transmission into a written word in another language from two different authors, mm-hmm. one who was there, one who likely wasn't there. Um, and so I, I don't, this doesn't shake my faith at all. This is just how oral transmission works. I will point out when you look at oral transmission in Jesus culture, they were very accurate with these things. Right, so it's pretty right. crazy. They're way better than we were. Um, but uh, those are some of those those competing factors. Um, so that's three. I, I know I said there were five. I don't remember all five, but, but one of the five was, maybe this is four, is I, I think it's important for us to remember that part of the reason that, that we don't want to throw this away is how radical the teaching is, right? right? So w- what's, the, what's the end game of the disciples making this stuff up? Right, just right. just to bring dignity to the brokenhearted for no reason. Like that's a nice sentiment, but they don't get anything out of that. There's no monetary gain. Like this is something that it's so strange to us that it feels like why why would they make it up? If they're trying to make something up, they do what the Pharisees would do. They say, "Blessed are those who live righteously. Blessed are those who honor the Lord. Blessed are those who give their money to the church." Right? All these yeah. things that there's <laughs> some kind of gain out of. Right? So just feels like. Okay, yeah, maybe they made it up, but why would they do that, right? That's just, it doesn't hold water to me. Um, and, and I think in terms of why does, does Luke include some things, Matthew includes some other things, this is my fifth thing. I, you know, we, we don't know exactly how long the Sermon on the Mount was, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. three chapters, there's a lot of content, and, you know, you could probably read the Sermon on the Mount aloud in like 16 minutes. Was it a 16-minute sermon? Maybe. Or maybe this was Jesus lecturing for an hour or two or more, and these were like the highlights they mm-hmm. wrote out, mm-hmm. right? Jesus, it's very possible he was a very efficient communicator, and he just boom, 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 boom. There's also a chance that Jesus lectured for a long time, and Matthew was like, let me give you the bullets, and Luke's like, let me give you the bullets. And there's a ton of overlap, and there's some where you know, they go in different directions, different orders, but... Um, Luke is working to make an orderly account. Matthew's telling you what he experienced. Uh, so none of that shakes my faith at all. So sorry, skeptics. But um, 
I would guess it doesn't shake yours either, skeptic, right? It just, it feels like more like this way of life seems like I don't like it. Right. Is there a, can we just live the blessed life like Taylor Swift does? Do we really have to be poor and mourning and all that? Um, This is some pretty radical stuff. It'll only be the blessed life until San Francisco actually beats the Chiefs. Yeah, so it is kind of a now and and it's it's an eschatological (laughs) truth, yeah. But, uh, okay, yeah, I, I think very similar things as you and even the fact that some of these differences may even strengthen the argument that they didn't, they weren't in cahoots over each other and weren't trying to make something up. So there's a lot we could talk about that, but because it, I mean, honestly, it does feel like when you read both of these accounts that Jesus gave one of the best speeches in the history of the world and two guys are writing down what they heard or experienced in that speech. It does not feel like two guys, Matthew and Luke, were sitting in some dark room, like, okay, let's write this thing down and try to teach people this make religion we made up. Honestly, part of that, that's reason number six. It it feels (laughs) like this is two people trying to recall one of the best speeches in the history of the world. And uh, that is what happened. Yeah. So we get to verse 11 to round this out. And we'll ask one more question here. It says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So already in the verse 11, you see the turn of phrase from blessed are, are those to blessed are you. And so we, this seems like a different statement altogether. It, it is one of the Beatitudes, the ninth and final one, but it just seems different. It seems longer. It seems more drawn out. And so to conclude our episode here, uh, um, tell us about this last one, why, why Jesus and Matthew decide to put this at the very end. And it actually lines up with the Luke account too, so it, it matches. Um, and as we move forward into the Sermon on the Mount and into the specific teachings, what do you think the Beatitudes do to, to prepare our minds to receive what's ahead in store for the Sermon on the Mount? It's interesting with this idea of blessed are the blank. Uh, Jesus was not the first person ever talking that construction. That was actually a, a construction that other philosophers or speakers would would use when they were giving speeches. And it, and it always was in the third person. Blessed are the blank. Blessed are the blank. And so we do get that sense in Matthew that Jesus kind of turns the corner from the normal convention to like look you in the eye and say, blessed are you. And it's like, whoa, this is, he's talking <laughs> about us here. Right? It's not just some theoretical thing, which I would guess, you know, I wasn't there, but I would guess that this was so remarkable that people were whispering and talking about it, which could be one of the reasons that when you read Luke's account, he has the you, 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 you the whole time because it was so pervasive that Jesus took these macarisms, these blessed art thous or blessed art those and turn into a blessed art thou and and stuck it at you. But I just feel like if I'm sitting there and I'm hearing about all these things in general, it's warming my heart. And then all of a sudden I'm, he's looking at me right in the eyes. Blessed are you. And it almost is this reality check of this stuff I'm talking about is not just philosophy. The stuff I'm talking about is going to impact your life, right? When they insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It's it's almost like, well, this just got real, right? This mm. is this is gonna happen to us, right? It's not just right. blessed, oh, I feel bad for those people who stuff happens to, but I guess they're blessed. It's like, no, you, when it happens to you, I'm about to invite you into a way of life that's likely gonna end you up in the crosshairs of society. Mm. And even in that moment, you're blessed. And I love what he says, I brought this up in the sermon, that um, 
blessed are you um, in those moments. He says, for great is your reward in heaven. He links it back to the Beatitudes and says, because in the kingdom you'll inherit all things. And then he says, because in the same way they treated the prophets who came before you. Hmm. And what what I brought on the sermon is this idea that he's he's saying, you those of you who are following me are on the right side of history, hmm. tying it into a, a ton of different indictments against the Old Testament folks and the curses of Isaiah and of Daniel um, and these different places where the prophets came, they spoke, and people didn't listen and they were taken into exile or people didn't listen and God brought punishment or judgment. And there's even Jesus brings up this a lot in the gospels where he, he gives a legitimacy of his own claim where uh, he says, the prophets came, you killed him, you stoned him. Then God sent his own son. You killed him too. Right. The, the, was this acts when, is it Stephen who stands up and Mm -hmm. says, Mm -hmm. right. how, how hard-hearted you are and slow to believe, right? You always crucify the prophets, and now you've done this to Jesus. Um, this Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him Lord in Christ. And this is a motif throughout the scriptures that uh, the people who think they honor God but don't reject and kill the messengers of God. So Jesus is the capital M messenger of God who will ultimately be killed um, for what he's saying, but then will redeem all things. But he's also saying, if you're going to follow me, it's going to happen to you too. And that doesn't mean that you're in the wrong. That means that you're in the right, because this is what happens to those who truly follow God, that even the religious folks among them turn on them and persecute them for their faith. Well, man, I mean, what a casting of a vision for a life that follows Jesus. And I love that turning. Blessed are you. So as you're listening, this isn't just theoretical stuff of, man, who is in this situation it's all turned back on us. And so as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we are prepared to, to be challenged in a lot of ways and, and begin to follow Jesus in a way that the disciples in the early church called literally the way mm. of Jesus. And so, um, Pastor Danny, man, what a teaser to the next couple months here in the Sermon on the Mount. So thanks for sitting down with us and unpacking the Beatitudes a little bit more. I can't wait to keep walking through it. Spoiler alert, next week, Jesus actually gives a little bit of application to these Beatitudes. So if you're like, well, what do I do with this? Come back next week. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Pastor Danny. 